0: related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Our speaker this evening received his undergraduate degree in philosophy from Regis University in Denver. Dr. Wunsch pursued his graduate studies at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome, obtaining baccalaureate, licentiate, and doctoral degrees in philosophy. Teaching at Christendom College since 2005, Dr. Wunsch has served as Associate Professor of Philosophy, Academic Dean, Director of Rome Academics, and Chairman of Philosophy. Having traveled throughout the country and internationally lecturing on various philosophical topics, Dr. Wunsch has been a regular speaker at the Magdala Apostolate, for ICC and also obviously for regular ICC webinars and lectures. We're delighted to have him return after his popular series on Aristotle's ethics. Um, and Dr. Wunsch, the mic will be handed over to you after Father begins the opening prayer. Thank you, Andy. In the name of the Father, <laughs> and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh, master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your Holy church. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Dr.
2: Wunsch. Thanks so much. And St. Philip Neri, pray for us uh, on, on his feast today. Uh, great, great to see everybody. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, I'm going to cut, just kind of dive right into things here with, without much ado, uh, much delay. Uh, so again, let, let me state at the outset what, what the objectives are, you know, what, what I'd like to accomplish. Uh, I've set some modest objectives for us, and then delve right into the content. Now, the first kind of exciting thing I have for you is I developed uh, my first PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> At least it provides some order, some direction uh, for our, our talk this evening. So that will be a new thing, and, and I'm looking forward uh, to, to seeing how that goes. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic, but we'll see. Uh, so without further ado, then, uh, let me present here uh, and, uh, and share uh, this, this title of our talk. So the title of the talk is Discovering Wisdom. Aristotle Islam, and scholastic philosophy, okay? And this is a good segue into discussing the goals for our time together. Now, I think it's very important to have modest goals, okay? Now, if you're able to distill everything that I'm talking about this evening uh, with perfect clarity and even go beyond as I share certain things, you're able to maybe ponder new discoveries and new thoughts or connect what I'm saying with other content that you've learned in, in other classes you've had. Or in your own personal studies, great. Uh, but my modest goal for this evening is uh, looking at our title, that we might understand a little bit better what wisdom is. Okay, a little bit better the role of Aristotle, uh, both in Christian thought uh, and in Islamic thought. Okay, and I would like you at the end of our evening to understand what scholastic philosophy is. Scholastic philosophy, uh, which we find uh, in the Middle Ages is not identical uh, with all intellectual speculation that is going on in the Middle Ages, but has a a particular flavor and gives to the intellectual patrimony of our church its own particular contribution. And so hopefully by the end of our time you will understand better uh, all of these kind of key terms we find here in the title uh, for our lecture. Okay, Uh, so those those are my modest goals. Okay, Uh, now, now if we want to expand them a bit Uh, I I do want you to see how the Islamic world, okay, and and some of the great Islamic philosophers that I'm going to be introducing you to uh, became a conduit by which the thought of Aristotle, okay, came to be rediscovered in the Latin West. Now, this is a kind of strange phenomenon, uh, because you might think, well, if he was just in Greece, you know, why couldn't his philosophy just kind of make its way from Greece to the rest of Europe? And this is part of what I'm gonna be doing in this first hour. I'm gonna be explaining the circuitous route by which the thought of Aristotle, which became lost to the West, came to over the course of close to seven centuries, be rediscovered by way of the Islamic world. And so I'm going to this first hour, uh, detail some of this historic progression Okay, from Greece to Baghdad, to Iberia, and back to Paris and the great intellectual centers of Western Europe uh, and into the classroom where Aquinas, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure uh, were students in in 1248. uh, And to see how uh, this thought came to enter into Western Europe again and discuss a little bit of the reception of Aristotle. Okay, another minor goal for this first hour is is to make it clear that Aristotle and and his thought were not always kind of pre-reconciled with Christian thought. But it took time and a great deal of effort to reconcile Aristotelian philosophy, or at least the aspects of Aristotelian philosophy that could be reconciled with Christian philosophy. Uh, It might come as a surprise to you, But when Aristotle's thought was rediscovered in the West between the middle part of the 12th century and the middle of the 13th century is really when the great work that we're going to discuss of translation took place, uh, where Aristotle came to be rediscovered in the West. Uh, I think you'll, you'll be fascinated to discover that he was not welcome. Uh, And it took a lot of uh, interesting endeavors and efforts on the part of men like Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, to partly uh, to uh, extricate from Aristotle's thought some of the heterodox notions that had been attached to it uh, by some of our Islamic thinkers uh, and and, and who were very much influenced by a, a brand of Neoplatonism that wasn't always very compatible with uh, the gospel, with Christian theology, and and to see how this work occurred of of making Aristotle and and working his thought in such a way uh, that it came in large part to be seen as compatible uh, with uh, Christian theology. Okay, so we're gonna trace that endeavor. In the second uh, part of uh, our evening tonight, I'm going to introduce you to about five different Islamic thinkers okay? that they, they came to have a profound influence uh, over Christian thought, uh, over men like St. Thomas Aquinas. We're going to talk about uh, Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, uh, Avicenna, or Ibn Sina, uh, Al-Ghazali, and Averroes, or Ibn Rushd. And we're going to look at not only how uh, their thought came to be seen as, in some cases, dangerous uh, to Christian theology, uh, but also how many of their philosophical insights came to be utilized. Uh, And I would argue even some of the signature uh, insights, especially of Avicenna in in the field of metaphysics, came to be handed on to Aquinas, uh, who was very much influenced by the thought of Avicenna, And I I would even go so far as to argue that some of the central, unique, and distinguishing contribution to the history of philosophy made by St. Thomas Aquinas uh, were very much indebted to the philosophy of Vicenna, okay? And that's something I'll like to show uh, by the end of our second hour, okay? So without further ado, let's delve into things, okay? Uh, So our our first uh, slide here that I'd like to share with you. Okay, we're going to talk about, first of all, what philosophy is. So we have there Aristotle and Plato. We're going to talk about the nature of philosophy. Because uh, why are we talking about something kind of this this kind of basic uh, provincial kind of beginning to our conversation? Well, it's very important because what we're going to be talking about is looking at a field of inquiry that hasn't always happily coexisted with religion, okay, with theology, And and this is true, okay. both within the context of Christianity, uh, within the context of uh, Judaism, uh, within the context of Islam, uh, the great monotheistic traditions of the West, uh, there's always been challenges to trying to harmonize philosophy with theology uh, and with the faith. And so as we discuss this pursuit of wisdom, uh, the pursuit of wisdom that is pursued both by faith Uh, by these various uh, religious traditions, uh, but also by reason. And how can reason be seen to be compatible with the faith? Uh, These are issues that are uh, really very much uh, at the heart of uh, our our discussion this evening as we try to see how the philosophical ideas of Aristotle, uh, these great Islamic philosophers, uh, came to be received uh, into their religious traditions. Okay. Uh, and, and to see a little bit of why there might be a certain kind of contentious or acrimonious relationship uh, between philosophy and theology at times, and how some of the, that acrimony was able to be overcome uh, within different contexts. Uh, and so, uh, without further ado, uh, I, I'm going to begin by uh, talking about what philosophy is. Uh, So, if if, uh, some of you have had me before, I have dealt with this topic. I think I I discussed maybe with Dr. O'Donnell on a different occasion. Uh, We we had a a kind of a a team talk. Well, it was over the course of multiple weeks. uh, Reflection on faith and reason. Uh, You might refer back to that if if you're so inclined. Uh, And so, I I make some of these distinctions in other talks, but I think they're very important to make at the outset, because I think a lot of... uh, our average kind of churchgoers have a hard time wrapping their head around what philosophy is. So I'm going to kind of roll through this very briefly uh, as we set the stage for discussing what Islamic philosophy might be, okay? So philosophy can be understood in two different senses. Uh, There'd be philosophy in the wide sense, okay? And philosophy in a more narrow and strict sense. It's only in the narrow and strict sense that philosophy is distinct. From theology. In the wide sense, philosophy is actually taken to be identical with theology. Uh, Let me explain, okay? Now, one of the terms uh, that uh, is featured in the uh, title of our uh, lecture this evening is wisdom, discovering wisdom. And philosophy in the wide sense defines, uh, is defined as the love of wisdom, okay? The love and pursuit of wisdom, uh, which which the very... uh, word philosophy connotes, uh, the love of wisdom, is the definition okay, of philosophy in the wide sense. Okay? Now, I'd like you to see something here though, because if we define philosophy in this way, we'll discover that it cannot be distinguished from theology, okay? and this poses certain problems. And so it is a good definition. Uh, it's a working definition that works uh, in, in many different senses. But as we'll discover, there needs to be a more narrow definition if we're going to talk about the difference between philosophy and theology. Why is that? Well, let's start with uh, understanding what wisdom is. So I would argue that wisdom, if I had to simplify, is an understanding of the ultimate causal explanations of reality, okay? So wisdom goes beyond knowledge. Knowledge gives us insight into certain facts about our experience, but wisdom gets at the heart of things, if you will. It understands uh, the, the answers to the foundational question. Where does everything come from? Where is it going? What is man? What is happiness? Okay, it deals with the most broad and general questions. Uh, and it gives you insight into the foundational causes that make reality be as it is, okay? Now, if that's the definition in our understanding of wisdom, And if I asked you where you go to become wise, your answer might be, well, uh, I go to my faith. And that's exactly what Augustine would say. Uh, Where do we get answers uh, into the perennial things? Uh, We get the best and most certain answers to the perennial questions, the most important, most all-encompassing questions by way of religion, and we gain it with the highest degree of certitude. And for this reason, St. Augustine says true philosophy is identical with true religion. True philosophy is identical with true religion because it's in religion that we discover the foundational answers uh, to all of those questions. You know, Christ is the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. Okay, Uh, And and we understand who man is, what man is made for, what, what his happiness is. Uh, we get answers to all those foundational questions and with the highest degree of certitude by way of our religion. That's why also Clement of Alexandria, uh, the great philosopher who was very much influenced by Plato and influenced by Stoic thought, said, when I found Christianity, I found the true philosophy. Because it's in Christianity that man becomes revealed to himself. It's in Christianity that he finds the ultimate answers to all of those foundational questions, okay? Now, if that's the case, true philosophy is identical to true religion, we have a problem, however, because you'll find that if religion is what we deal with a theology and it's identical with, with, with uh, philosophy, well, then philosophy and theology completely overlap. They're the same thing. And for reasons I'm not gonna fully get into, uh, the scholastics, so we're gonna talk about them a little later, came to see a need to distinguish the way in which we come to wisdom, okay? Whether by faith or whether by reason, okay? And if you looked with me at this next slide, okay, uh, it it speaks to this, okay? So uh, the the Venn diagram you see here, uh, maybe if you've seen my talks, you've seen me use these. If you look at the Venn diagram on the right, uh, this represents the domain of philosophy, okay? Uh, what is discussed, all the truths of philosophy. And and, and the, the circle on the left represents the domain of theology, okay? And you'll notice that they don't totally overlap, okay? But they partially overlap, okay? If you look at the terms that I, I provided here on, on this slide, articles of faith and the preambles of faith speak to two different kinds of truths, Okay? that belong to theology, okay? The articles of faith are defined as those truths that belong exclusively and only to theology, okay? The truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you need to have faith in order to affirm that. Uh, That the, the Godhead is triune, to affirm that you need revelation and faith to come to that conclusion. And so the articles of faith belong uh, on the left side, okay, to the part of theology that reason cannot prove, okay? And then there are the preambles of faith, and this is the overlapping region between philosophy and theology. And there are truths that belong there to both philosophy and theology, the truths that God exists, okay? These truths are able to be proven by reason, okay? Okay? Uh, a reason unaided by faith. The truth that the soul is immortal belongs in this region as one of the preambula, preambulum fide, uh, a preamble to the articles of faith. And so it belongs to both philosophy and theology. Why? Because these truths are both re- revealed. You read the scripture, you discover that God exists. You discover that after life, uh, part of man, his soul survives death and will either live up north with God or down south, uh, you know, in in the inferno, okay? But these truths were also proven by way of argument, okay? Uh, Aristotle and uh, Plato, for instance, offered arguments, if you will, for the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, as did many philosophers who came after them, who uh, gave arguments, okay, on the basis of reason to affirm those truths, and yet, as you'll see, there are arguments, okay, arguments only go so far, uh, dialectic uh, only goes so far, and there are truths that lie beyond the powers of of reason to comprehend, and that's where the articles of faith come in, and so philosophy, in the strict sense, okay, we find that philosophy and theology are not different, always. In terms of their subject matter, so unlike botany and zoology, they can't be distinguished simply according to what they study. Sometimes they study the same thing. Okay, even let's take another preamble. Uh, fide would be that murder's wrong. The natural law says that, and the divine law says that. Okay, uh, and that would be along to that overlapping region. Okay, and so the subject matter isn't a good way to know for sure if you're doing theology or philosophy. But instead it's the way in which they pursue their objects, their subject matter. Uh, And that's why we define philosophy in the strict sense as the study of that which can be known by the natural light of human reason, okay? Uh, And theology would be the study of that which can be known by the divine light of God's revealed word, okay? And so we have these different divisions. And and why were they created? Well, the scholastics uh, assumed But there's a challenge, okay, there's a challenge if we don't distinguish things. Because if we offer, if we believe things like Jesus is Lord, or let's say the the triune God is is triune because shamrocks have three different leaves, unbelievers will will, will have a chance, might laugh at us, as as Aquinas mentions in the Prima Pars, questions 46, article 2. We have to be very clear about which truths are able to be known by which method. And therefore we need to to demarcate between philosophy and theology and to affirm that they are formally distinct because of their method because of how they study their objects okay now all of that prepares the way okay for some of the distinctions that i'm going to make here now so what does this mean for islamic philosophy what does this mean for christian philosophy now i'm not going to answer this question the very notion though of christian philosophy uh, it should give you pause, uh, as it did to Martin Heidegger, the great 20th century philosopher. Uh, a Christian philosophy seems to be uh, like a round circle and a square peg. You know, they don't go together, okay? We have the study of truth by way of revelation, that's fine, that's, the, that's religion, and by reason is, is, is on the other side, okay? But what is Christian philosophy, okay? And so we have to be careful, okay? And I would say that we have to, we have to be careful when using those terms, What we mean, I would argue, when you use Christian philosophy is not that we're actually using revelation in our arguments, our philosophical proofs, but instead that our faith inspires us to investigate reality by way of reason, okay? We know the dignity of human life, okay? We know that man is made in the image and likeness of God, and and I know this by faith, and now this can maybe inspire me to say, hey, can I prove by reason that man has an inviolable dignity that other things, other lower things like plants and animals do not possess. And it's in that way that we can have a Christian philosophy. Uh, Our Christianity can inspire us to pursue truth by reason. And, And it helps us to know when we go astray as well, okay? And it's that sense in which I think we're speaking of philosophy now as both Christian philosophy and Islamic philosophy, okay? Now, looking at the history of Islam uh, and looking at the history of Christianity, there hasn't always been the happiest relationship uh, between uh, philosophy and theology. Uh, you know, there's the famous quote of Tertullian, what does Athens have to do with Greece? We find a lot of Protestant theologians uh, and, uh, say, you know, to even try to prove God's existence by reason is problematic, embracing a kind of fideism, okay? And then we find also in, in our Catholic tradition, uh, thinkers like William of Ockham, uh, who denies the power of reason to know universals and therefore says the only way we can, for instance, know anything about morality is not by way of reason, but only by way of what God communicates. Okay? And so I'm going to argue that the, dis- the sciences are distinct, okay? but complementary okay? and compatible. Okay, and many of the thinkers we'll talk about this evening had that idea, although there are some who will favor theology over philosophy, and there are others that will favor philosophy over theology, and we'll come to see that as our evening unfolds. Okay, Uh, so now, okay, that is our kind of background, okay, in terms of understanding what philosophy is, uh, understanding its relationship with our faith and this will affect everything we're doing the rest of the evening as we talk about Christian philosophy and talk about Islamic philosophy. Okay? Now the next endeavor okay, for us uh, is to get into kind of the heart of this first part of our lecture, and that is here, the, the rediscovery okay, of Aristotle via the Islamic world, from Greece to Baghdad to Iberia to Paris. Okay. And so here I'm going to talk about the very circuitous way, a little bit of the history of how Aristotle came to be rediscovered in the West. Okay. Now this discussion could go on for hours, but I'm going to have to distill things. Okay. In order for us to get at least some of the the key moments uh, in this history. Okay. All right. Now there's a long relationship okay, there's a long-standing relationship of Greece with uh, the the near Middle East, okay, and North Africa. Uh, With with, uh, Alexander the Great, you know, three centuries before Christ, Uh, we have the spreading of Greek culture and language to some extent uh, through much of the near Middle East and North Africa. And so there's a long history of uh, there being a Greek influence on that part of the world, okay? Now, looking at other significant moments, okay, you'll remember in, in, in your history classes way back when, that in 410 was the fall of Rome, okay? Rome fell in 410. It's in, under, in this period that, that Western Europe starts to fall apart in many ways. Uh, there is a kind of disillusion, okay, of, of what used to be the Roman Empire that makes travel difficult, which makes communication difficult. Uh, with threats from barbarian peoples, uh, it, it, people are, are worried about their own livelihood. And, and if there's anything that, is, that compromises philosophical reflection more, speculative thought more, it's civil unrest. Uh, philosophy came to be in Ionia, uh, Asia Minor, at a time of relative peace and prosperity. It's under these conditions that people have the leisure to pursue philosophical speculation. But since uh, 410, certainly this is very, very much compromised, okay? Now, another important moment happens in the 6th century, okay? A couple different things that I'll point out. Uh, I I gave another talk on on, uh, blessed Boethius. Uh, Boethius, uh, who dies in uh, 524, was aware that the Western world, Western Europe was falling apart. And he was worried that a lot of the patrimony, the perennial wisdom of the Greeks would be lost, okay? And so during his form of education in Athens, he made a commitment to try to translate, okay, all of the relevant and most important works of Greek philosophy, especially those of Plato and Aristotle, from Greek into Latin, okay, uh, and, and, and he is largely successful, okay, and a lot of the, the works were already translated of Plato, who people found, for reasons I might discuss a little bit later, to be a little bit more compatible originally with Christianity. Uh, but then he began to translate Aristotle. Sadly, this work was not successful. Uh, he was put to death in 524, uh, uh, and, and by the time of his death, he only had the ability to translate a few of the logical works of Aristotle. He translated Aristotle's uh, categories, uh, he translated his De Interpretatione, two of the the logical works of Aristotle's Organon, his Organon was, was a collection of his logical works, came to be translated. And those were the only works of Aristotle that survived throughout the Middle Ages until the rediscovered in the 12th century, okay? Uh, it was those works that were in the monasteries when, uh, at Beck, uh places like Beck in France, when uh, uh, the, the great abbot uh, Saint Anselm okay, and his monks told him to prove God's existence using dialectic and reason. They were inspired by Aristotle's logic, and they wanted him to offer rational arguments. Okay? But the, the whole width and breadth of Aristotle's thought came to be lost. Okay, another important moment happens in 529. In 529, the Emperor Justinian closed Plato's Academy which had been in operation for, you know, uh, almost a thousand years, okay? Now what happened to that wisdom? Did it go west? Did it go east? Well, it it clearly went east, okay? Uh, If it went west, uh, we, we have a civilization in decay. But there was still in the Byzantine world, a kind of thriving vital civilization. Uh, and so much of the wisdom came to be inherited by peoples in Syria, peoples in North Africa, and great centers of learning like Alexandria. Okay, uh, uh, that's where the great science, the great wisdom of the Greeks came to be inherited. Okay, now as we move swiftly through this historical narrative, uh, we find Muhammad coming on the scene in Arabia. Okay? He dies in 620, uh, 632, okay, and swiftly, uh, if I'm getting my dates right, I just I jotted some of these down, in 636, Syria's conquered, Jerusalem in 638, Egypt in 641, Iran in 644, okay, and swiftly by the beginning of the next century, okay, by the beginning of the 8th century, uh, we find, okay, we find, uh, uh, the Islamic uh, uh, world stretching, okay, from the Hindi Kush mountains uh, of, of, of India, all the way to the Iberian Peninsula, okay, we have this, this, this massive spread of Islamic religion. Now, a lot of the peoples there saw them as the, the new conqueror, okay, uh, but what inevitably happens is this new conqueror inherits the wisdom that exists in the peoples of these lands, okay? Now, to make a long story short, there's a, some, another important event here that happened, okay? Uh, in, 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 uh, during the reign of a, of a man by the name of al-Mamun, okay? Al-Mamun is a, is a caliph. Uh, he, he's the, 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 uh, the head of religion and, soci- and, 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 and society uh, in the city of Baghdad, uh, the city of Baghdad, okay? Uh, and it's this great city of the Islamic East that becomes uh, a preeminent center of learning. And this al-Mamun, okay, uh, he develops uh, what we call, he calls the house of wisdom, okay? And he gets the, the scholars, who are often Christians and Jews, to perform the work of translating, okay? A lot of this great Greek wisdom Uh, which has come from Greek into the native Syriac dialect, Uh, it's then translated into Arabic, okay, and made present at one great center of learning in Baghdad. And from here, okay, this wisdom is spread to other parts of the Islamic world. Uh, These madrasas, uh, a a madrasa is is a center for scholarship, often features a kind of bookshop, a place for copying uh, text, Uh, They became places where philosophy, uh, these philosophical works would be copied and then distributed to other parts of the Islamic world. And it's in this manner that a lot of the great wisdom, okay, of the Greeks came to be disseminated. Now, we're going to go into all the different important figures, okay, I'm going to skip over them now, we're going to talk about them in the second hour. Uh, But this wisdom then comes to uh, be spread, okay, throughout the Islamic world, okay, now, during this period, I think it's very important to point out here that the Middle Ages in Western Europe were not all dark, okay? But there was a dark period, okay? So when was that, okay? Well, there was a dark period after uh, the, you know, the, the death of Boethius in, in the 6th century uh, until the reign of Charlemagne, okay? Uh, which is the very beginning of the ninth century. And then, you know, there, there is a relative uh, moment in which... Uh, uh, in, in the Carolingian courts, that there's a rediscovery of learning, but it just doesn't last. And so the rest of the ninth century falls back into a state of decay. Uh, the papacy was affected by, by secular influences. Uh, as evidence of this, if I'm not mistaken, there's not a single canonized pope okay, from the uh, ninth century. Okay? Uh, so, so Western Europe is, is in, in intellectual and spiritual decline. Okay. Now, what jumpstarts uh, the movement out of the Dark Ages and, and the resurgence of the intellectual and spiritual life came from monastic reform uh, at Cluny uh, in particular. And this Cluniac reform has its way of, which, which happens like in the early 10th century, uh, it, it, it affects the papacy. We have a lot of great popes uh, in the 11th century that, that were affected by that. And this is where monastic learning really kicks off, and we begin to move out of a very dark period. But in the ninth century in Europe, uh, Islamic civilization was far more advanced. Uh, the city of Cordoba was the most culturally advanced city in Europe, okay? and it was, it was part of the Islamic world. Uh, and you know the rest of Europe was was very much uh, affected by all these marauding peoples. The Norse, okay. Uh, we have the Saracens, okay. Also, uh, we have uh, the, the the Mongols, the Huns, all kind of uh, kind of uh, affecting uh, the the travel uh, in Europe, making the dissemination of ideas very very difficult. Uh, and so we have a very low ebb, okay. Now uh, with the rediscovery of, of intellectual life and spiritual life through, through, I think in large part, what happens through the Cluniac reform, uh, we find reform in, in, in the church and uh, intellectual form as well. Okay? Uh, now it's at this moment in the 10th century, okay, where the wisdom moves in, in, out of the monastery and then into the, uh, the in, in the 11th century, uh, in, in, I'm sorry, the 12th century, it, it moves into the urban centers. And kind of like there was these madrasas or centers of learning in the Islamic world, we have these cathedral schools that develop, okay? These cathedral schools then evolve into the modern university. And by the 13th century, we have definitely emerged out of any dark period in in, in Europe. And Europe once again begins to thrive. Uh, and, And there are thriving urban centers. It's at this time we have the University of Paris, Uh, Oxford and Cambridge and Bologna and Salamanca and all of the great centers of learning are established, okay? Uh, But before that, okay, the Islamic world was thriving in ways that that, that Western Europe was not, okay? Now, how does this wisdom come into and come to affect uh, Western Europe? Uh, Well, I'll say this in the next five minutes, and and I'll be very brief and, and try to kind of distill this, Well, it's during the Reconquista, okay, as parts of Iberia are conquered again, okay, uh, and also certain islands like in Sicily and other parts of the Mediterranean are kind of retaken by, by Christian forces, that there comes to be an encounter between Christian civilization and Islamic civilization. And what they discover would be the works of Aristotle and the great commentaries on Aristotle and the great philosophical works that have been produced by Islamic scholars, all come flooding into Europe at the same time, between 1150 and 1250, okay? The middle part of the 12th century into the 13th century, a wealth of content and wisdom comes flooding into Europe, okay? Now, it exists at first in translation, okay, and now I'm going to get into some of these other slides, but one of the first great works will be to get better translations, because you'll notice (laughs) Aristotle has gone from Greek into Syriac, into Arabic, and sometimes into Spanish before he comes back into Latin, and so there'll be a need to get quality translations directly from the Greek of Aristotle's work. And that will be one of the extremely important endeavors of of, uh, the scholastics, okay? And there's also going to be a need to extricate, to separate the authentic teaching of Aristotle from the thought of his commentators. Because sometimes his commentators do not always interpret Aristotle in a way that would be compatible uh, with Christianity. And therefore there's a need to distinguish Aristotelian thought from the thought of his commentators okay and, and this work then happened uh uh over the course of a hundred years okay we find these translations okay this bad game of telephone <laughs> is overcome uh and it, he comes into europe uh as as he his thought is uh uh in, in, in what, what is first an adulterated form uh, in fact, it's not even clear which ideas are his, which ideas are that of his commentators. And so there's a need to separate his thought. Okay? And this is why, originally, there are a host of ecclesiastical prohibitions, uh, especially kind of a heterodox, Neoplatonic-influenced uh, understanding of, of Aristotle uh, came to be seen as dangerous. Uh, he affirmed things like the world is eternal, that God doesn't know singulars, Uh, There's a kind of determinism uh, in their understanding of things. Uh, And and so Aristotle's thought was prohibited from being taught in 1210. Uh, It was only through the work of St. Thomas, the work of Albert the Great, where they were able to say the authentic Aristotle, if uh, extricated from a lot of his commentators, his thought could be reconciled with Christian teaching. And it was just at the time, and this is how God works providentially maybe, that Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure are students at the University of Paris, that the totality of the Aristotelian corpus exists in good translations, okay? And they are part of the first generation of individuals to have access to this wealth of wisdom. Now, what they do with it is something that we're going to talk about, and then we're going to go back and hit some of those major Islamic thinkers to see, okay, what their different contributions were uh, to this, these new insights, okay, that come into Western world by way of the Islamic thinkers who were the conduit by which Aristotle, Made his way from Greece, okay, through Syria, through Baghdad, through Iberia, and all the way to the classrooms at the University of Paris. Yeah, so thank you guys. It's it's a it's a whirlwind tour that we just made. Okay, we made a whirlwind tour. Uh, but again, what what I'd like to emphasize here is is we uh, again we have modest goals. Okay, uh, all those particulars are fun if you want to go back and get them. Fine, but but I, I want us as, as to be informed Catholics and to be aware of, of things that are, that are fascinating. We assume you know, that Aristotle and Plato, since they wrote, uh, their works were always present. Uh, now, Cicero uh, praises the poetry of Aristotle, but, but his poetry was never rediscovered, okay? Uh, and and it, it's non-existent, okay? Uh, and, and it's not all of his work, but actually his class notes that came to be passed on, uh, but again, it was in an early, you know, at an earlier time, Plato uh, was uh, reconciled, if you will, with Christian thought, as we'll discover here in a moment. Uh, and that's why kind of a platonic influence thought of, of Augustine came to be seen as Orthodox, the conservative school. And when Aristotle was discovered and Aquinas was open to learning from Aristotle, uh, he was seen as, as a, a novelizer uh, and someone who's dangerous. Uh, you know, even after St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, he, there was a prohibitions against the teaching, and I'll mention in a moment, of Aristotle that happened uh, in, 1270, in 1277. Uh, his thought was seen to be dangerous and, and was condemned, much of it. Uh, certainly, as interpreted by a Averroes, someone we're going to talk about the second hour, Uh, But even Aquinas was was kind of, uh, his reputation was wounded by these these, uh, condemnations. And his old mentor, his professor, Albert the Great, as a a very old man at at the age of 77, had to come from Cologne, Germany to Paris to defend the reputation of his star pupil. Uh, You know, there was Franciscans who had general chapters where they would, uh, there's a whole literature called the Correctio Literature where they corrected all of the dangerous errors of the Summa Theologiae. And young Franciscans were not allowed uh, for the, to the, these impressionable young minds to be afflicted you know, with the, the subtleties of Aquinas' thought, which were seen to be too open to the novelties of Aristotle. Now, now these are, are really interesting things that, that maybe many of you are, have not been aware of. Okay. So let's start with this point. Okay. And then we'll move on from there. Uh, the, the point I'd like to make here is, okay, now, now what is scholasticism? Okay. Cause remember we have modest goals. We want to learn a little bit about what philosophy is, what Christian philosophy, Islamic philosophy might be, who are some of the central thinkers? How did the thought of it in the Islamic world come to affect the Christians? Oh, we've already talked about wisdom, uh, but what is scholasticism? Okay, I would argue that scholasticism, and we can understand this because of the first hour. Okay, uh, scholasticism is, I think, associated with two things. For someone to be a scholastic, they have to check two boxes. Okay, they have to be a schoolman. Okay, uh, so scholastic means someone who pursued wisdom in the context of a school, and that was not always the case. Okay, where was it pursued before that? And anyone want to respond? Where was it pursued before it was pursued in the context of the cathedral schools and the universities? It was pursued in, yeah, yeah. go ahead. The monasteries? The monasteries, exactly. It was in the monasteries. It was in the context of, of, of the monastic life that intellectual uh, speculation thrived in the 11th century. Okay, um, and, and, and it took into the 12th and then 13th century for that that wisdom in the monasteries to kind of come out of the monasteries and make a a resurgence into uh, the, the urban centers. So we have some of the first thinkers, okay? Beginning a little bit in the monasteries when they had access to some of Aristotle. But the first scholastics are not very often the patristic fathers, okay? They were influenced by Plato, but and they didn't pursue wisdom as much within the context of academia, okay? And these, the two features that you have, the the, the two boxes you have to check to be a scholastic, your thought has to be influenced by Aristotle, okay? And Aristotle was was into definitions and divisions, okay? It was very objective, not as subjective, okay? When you read uh, Augustine's Confessions, okay, When I say subjective, it means kind of autobiographical in some sense. You learn a lot about Augustine, okay, when you read his his confessions. It has a kind of subjective focus of truth. It doesn't mean relativistic, but there's a focus on the individual and and his coming to truth within the context of his own concrete human existence. Whereas with Aristotle, things are very objective. You know, you could read the Summa and learn almost nothing about St. Thomas Aquinas, right? Right. Uh, You don't learn anything about him when you read uh, about the Summa, you know, Uh, because he's influenced kind of by Aristotle's way of doing things. Uh, There's a lot of definitions and divisions. He keeps things very objective, okay, and there's a lot of it abounds in technical terminology that is proper to a school setting, okay, and so it's when the wisdom was pursued in the context of schools, and was affected by the thought of Aristotle, that we have the beginning of scholasticism. And so we see in the Middle Ages, before that, there's a lot of great and important thinkers who are not scholastics, okay? Uh, really the scholastics come on the scene, really 11th century, maybe in the very early form, and then develop more in the 12th and 13th century. Now, when does scholasticism end? Okay, uh, well, people still studied at schools. So you said, well, did scholasticism ever end? Well, sort of. And it ends, actually, in the modern era when Aristotle's rejected, okay? Uh, that is when, you know, so there's late scholastics, uh, you know, Saint Cad- uh, Cardinal Cajetan, uh, Francisco Suarez uh, in the Renaissance. But, but after that, actually, the modern thinkers, Descartes, Locke, all of these, these thinkers are, are distinct because of the rejection, not of school education, but the rejection of Aristotle. And that's when the Scholastic era ends, okay? Uh, so we're talking about how the Scholastics though came to be influenced by, uh, by Aristotle. So let me finish that first part of our chat, and then we're gonna get into some of these specific ideas, you know, uh, espoused by, by these thinkers that came to affect uh, um, our Scholastics in the West, okay? Now we talked about how his thought was not very well received, okay? But through the work of individuals like Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, kind of purified it, it, it came to be well-received. And, and then by the middle part of the 14th century, uh, by, by 1350, if someone wanted to present themselves for theological studies, they had to show a mastery of Aristotle, okay? And so Aristotle goes from being persona non grata, okay, in 1210, to you know, only 150 years later to being essential to the education of the aspiring theologians. Uh, very, very fascinating, okay? Now, moving forward uh, in, in our slides, okay? Uh, one of the last slides before we get into the, the Islamic thinkers themselves would be Aristotle and the religious orders, okay? And, and I say this because it's just one way to help organize our thoughts ab- about how his thought was received, okay? Uh, I'm I'm gonna focus on the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and then what I'm gonna call the secular masters, okay? Uh, The Franciscans, Dominicans, and the secular masters, which are basically the secular or diocesan clergy. Uh, Now, all of these these orders and the diocesan clergy uh, had a place and had chairs, permanent chairs of theology, and and also uh, often taught in the philosophy faculty at the University of Paris. Now, why do I keep speaking about Paris? Uh, There was the saying in the Middle Ages, okay, Uh, and I'm actually, it's been a long time since I read this, I'm just kind of speaking from memory, but I think Germany has the empire, okay, Rome has the church, and France has the knowledge, okay. Uh, The central part of the intellectual life, the, the flagship university was the University of Paris, okay, and it was there that people went to become educated, and then the people who were educated there were, were then dispersed, okay, to, to other great centers of learning at Cambridge and Oxford and Salamanca and Bologna and Cologne and Naples, et cetera, okay? Now at the University of Paris, okay, we found Dominicans, we found Franciscans and we found secular masters, okay? Now the Franciscans, and, and, and this doesn't work perfectly because they don't all, all Franciscans, there's a greater diversity than I'm, than I'm uh, insinuating here, okay? But in general, they were the conservatives of the time. Okay? And what does it mean to be conservative? It means to have your philosophy, okay? and, 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 and the, the, have the philosophical foundation for your theology be the thought of Augustine, and uh, his, who is very much influenced by Platonism. And so uh, the conservative Franciscans vacillated between being hostile to Aristotle to only mildly accommodating, okay? Uh, so they would say things like Bonaventure, that Aristotle's good for his logic, his ethics are okay, his, his natural philosophy of nature is good, but his metaphysics are terrible. Okay, whenever Aristotle starts speaking about super sensible reality, uh, it's then we have to kick him to the curb and go with Plato, okay? And I, and I think there's actually some, some cause for, for that assertion. Uh, now, the Dominicans are the middle position. Okay? They had a, a kind of openness to wisdom wherever it could be found, including from Aristotle, as long as his thought was purified okay, of certain editions that came from often some of his Islamic commentators, okay? like Averroes. Averroes is the commentator. We'll discover here in a moment. Uh, Whenever Aquinas writes the commentator uh, in his Summa Theology, it's referring to to Averroes. Averroes, as we'll discover, uh, thought Aristotle was was almost like the the height of of the possibilities of the human intellect. And so Averroes didn't try to come up with novel ideas, although he sort of does anyway. Uh, But his whole commitment was to simply comment on Aristotle. His commentaries are fantastic and expansive on the thought of Aristotle. But some of his interpretations were dangerous, okay? On issues we'll talk about here in a moment. Uh, and so he came uh, to be seen as, as, as a little bit dangerous. And so the Dominicans wanted to purify Aristotle from the, the, the novel interpretations of him uh, and as interpreted by people like Averroes. And as long as he was kind of seen and understood in his own form, okay? Extricated from all the, the the Neoplatonic and Islamic additions to his thought, They thought he could be largely reconciled, okay, with a Christian worldview, okay? And then there were the secular masters, people like Seeger of Brabant and Boethius of Dacia. Uh, These were diocesan clergy, and they often taught, not in the theology department as much, but in the arts faculty, the faculty of arts, the philosophy faculty, if you will, at the University of Paris. And they often taught Aristotle hook, line, and sinker, but also as interpreted by Averroes, okay? And it was because of that that often they got in trouble, okay? Uh, And and it was many of those individuals, including some of the specific people I mentioned, like Cedric Brabant, that were condemned uh, in, in those condemnations I talked about before the break in 1270, and in 1277, okay? But now you get the kind of lay of the land, okay? Now, having said all that, we have to make some other distinctions. Like, like St. Thomas Aquinas quotes Augustine more than anybody else, okay? Uh, and, and so Agu- Aquinas' thought is, is, again, he's open to wisdom wherever it can be found, okay? In Plato, and Aristotle, in the, obviously the church fathers, but then also in other individuals, okay, like the Islamic thinkers, okay, and we're now going to see how some of the insights of these great individuals, these great philosophical minds came to influence the the angelic Doctor, okay? So that deals with hopefully a little bit of this whole transmission of how Aristotle came to be rediscovered uh, in the West, what some of the challenges were uh, to him being rediscovered, and how the Islamic world acted as a kind of conduit by which Aristotle's thought was rediscovered, okay? So now we're going to get into, we're going to get into some of the thinkers themselves, okay? Uh, So with our next slide, uh, we're going to first talk very briefly about uh, this first Islamic thinker, okay? Uh, By the name of Al-Kindi, okay? So you can see uh, that he philosophized, okay? Uh, during the period of, of the, the golden age, if you will, of, of Islamic civilization, uh, we had al-Mamun, uh, who created his house of wisdom, uh, and it was from his library that al-Kindi especially profited. Now, I would say he is, of, the, of, of the, some of these early thinkers, okay, that we're going to discover, is, is the, the first and only Arab, okay, he, he's is from Arabia. Okay. Uh, al farabis is Turkish, avicenna and, and uh, Al-Ghazali are Persian. Uh, you know, we find uh, Averroes is a Moor, uh, kind of uh, from Iberia. And he's also someone who, who wants to reconcile philosophy and theology, and that's significant. Uh, he, he, did, he did not see there to be a great tension between philosophy and theology. Okay? Uh, he taught at Baghdad. Okay? He did works of translation. He wrote over 280 works. Uh, and and his work came to, especially regarding cosmology, uh, regarding uh, the natural sciences, if you will, came to influence Albert the Great, especially, in, in, in a profound way. And he developed certain themes that will be kind of indicative of Islamic thought. Uh, for instance, he saw the world as, as a piece of kind of divine architecture. Okay, uh, There's this theme in Islamic ph- philosophy that... Uh, the celestial order of the heavens. Okay? And by the heavens, I mean the cosmos, uh, that the earth should mirror that, okay? And there's also this idea that the individual is a kind of microcosm of the universe. You see this in Plato's thought, uh, and this is a kind of Neoplatonic concept, you know, that, that, uh, you know you, as, as Plato in his Republic, you'll remember as he goes looking for the different virtues, he looks at them first as in the city, and then in the individual, and the individual is, is a kind of microcosm of the city. Uh, and so as we learn where the virtues are found in the city, we learn where they are to be found in the individual. And, and this idea is very much adopted uh, by the Islamic thinkers, okay? And Al-Kindi, just to, to say a few more things, again, we'll run out of time, he was a great mathematician, a great scientist, and, and, and very much seen to also be a, an Orthodox Muslim, okay? Now, the next thinker uh, that we're going to go to is a man by the name of Al-Farabi. He was Turkish. Uh, He's born in, you you see there, born in 872, died in 950, okay? Uh, And and, and here we get get into some interesting uh, thoughts, okay? Uh, He is influenced by by a variety of sources, uh, but, but preeminently Aristotle. Also Plato, uh, his, Plato's Republic in particular, uh, very much influences the political thought of Al-Farabi. But also he's trying to reconcile Plato and Aristotle with Ptolemy, okay, and Ptolemaic cosmology. Uh, And so these are are, are some of his, his major influences, okay? Now he used the thought of philosophy uh, to try to justify the, the, the political authority. Now, he is, for what it's worth, a, a Shiite. Uh, he's a Shia who believed that, that uh, there is a kind of uh, divine passing on of the authority of Muhammad to, uh, to specific individuals, uh, uh, and, and not by way of election, uh, as, as in Sunni Islam. Uh, and so he wanted to kind of justify uh, the political order. And he found that in his study of the cosmology, okay, that the cosmos had a way of, in philosophy, mirroring the kind of political order he wanted to establish on earth. How so? Okay. Now, I'm going to introduce you to an idea that comes from the Neoplatonists uh, that is very important, okay, here. Uh, The Neoplatonists are are, are thinkers, the philosophized after Christ, okay. Uh, uh, Plotinus is a very famous one, lived during the 3rd century, uh, um, uh, he's a very famous Neoplatonist. And they developed some very important ideas, okay? And one important idea that they pass on to uh, the Islamic thinkers is this, it's it's their theory of emanation, okay? The theory of emanation as the means by which the created world comes into existence, okay? Now, I'll talk about that in a minute. Why their thought about emanation is is so fascinating and important is because though it is a kind of deterministic view of how the created world came to be, the Neoplatonists were the first individuals to give philosophical arguments for creation ex nihilo. Okay, it's an important mark of ancient Greek thought that none of them, with the exception maybe of Plato, believed that the world had a beginning in time. Okay, Aristotle definitely held the world to be eternal. Okay, Almost all of the ancient Greek thinkers thought the world was eternal. And so the idea, the Judeo-Christian idea that the world has a beginning in time is a radical idea. And this is actually, I think, a good example of Christian philosophy of how this insight of theology then affects philosophy and said, hey, can we make an argument to defend that? And as we'll see with Avicenna, he does give an argument, kind of defend creation ex nihilo. Uh, now, now, what does it mean to be created ex nihilo? It means that there is not some matter out there, okay, that uh, a, even a platonic kind of demi or who's a divine architect makes the universe out of, some inchoate, formless matter uh, that, that a kind of creator just uh, g- imposes form on. But no, the idea of creation ex nihilo is that everything comes from God, okay? There is no stuff out there that does not have its origin, its existence in God. And so everything comes from God, and God sustains all that is made in existence. And this idea first comes from the Neoplatonists, okay? But you'll see that their version of creation is not identical with what we see, what we affirm in Christianity. Uh, They held that God is thought-thinking itself, okay? He, He is pure act, no potency, and his very act of thinking about himself, he creates, okay? This idea of thinking is creative, okay? Now, uh, another way to put this that, that might make a little more sense of their idea of creation is that God is perfectly good. And that's by the nature of goodness is goodness is diffusive. Goodness spreads itself. Goodness is attractive and, and goodness uh, spreads, okay? And so if God is perfectly good, they envision the Neoplatonists, that God is like a cup of overflowing wine, okay? the God is perfect, all expansive being and goodness and that his being then overflows, okay, in a hierarchy of lesser beings. And so everything that comes to be comes to be from God, and everything has a share, a limited share granted in God's limitless being. So God simply is thought thinking itself, perfect goodness, and by nature, his being is diffusive uh, into other beings in the universe. Okay, Now there you have an idea of creation ex nihilo because there's nothing that, that doesn't come ultimately and have its origin in God. What's problematic is it happens by way of necessity and this becomes problematic. And so for the Islamic thinkers who adopt a kind of Neoplatonic understanding of creation, hook, line and sinker, their thought will be seen to be heterodox in relationship to Islam and in relationship to Christianity, because we do have now, okay, with a, from, from the Neoplatonists, a world, a created world that always came forth from God. And so it was made, and it comes from him, made out of nothing, but it still always existed, because God was seen to always exist, and he always creates or makes a world, okay? Now, how does this work? Okay, and, and I'm, I'm going to get into another slide. Uh, it, it, this is where things get pretty crazy, so, so bear with me. Uh, but the way this happens is, is uh, God creates and pours forth, okay, into different souls, okay? Um, these intelligences, they're like angels. Uh, his life uh, from God, okay, thinking himself produces an intellect, a, a single being, which is a kind of angelic being that moves the outermost of the spheres, the, the concentric spheres, the celestial spheres that, that, that go around the world. Again, in the, the Ptolemaic conception of, of, of cosmology, the earth's at the center and there's a series of celestial objects that appear to orbit it, okay? And we find that each of these orbits, okay, is moved by its own intelligence, uh, an active force, a kind of angel that moves the, the body, the physical body associated with that uh, celestial orbit, okay? Uh, and so we find uh, ultimately God, it was thought thinking itself, thinks himself he creates the next being okay which is the first intelligence the first intelligence thinking about god then produces the second intelligence so thinking about himself as necessarily coming from god produces the next intelligence and then uh, which is the soul okay if you will the moving principle of that concentric sphere and then thinking about himself as possible okay now there's the idea then that god is the only necessary being. And so God's existence comes from himself and is not dependent on anything else. And here we get an idea of God that's more compatible with Christianity, whereas everything that comes forth from him in itself is only possible. And so they come forth of necessity from God, okay? And that's where Avicenna will say all things that come from God are necessary per he says, in relationship to God, but not per se. That is, God is necessity, comes from his own nature. He exists by his very nature. Whereas all these other intelligences exist, okay, as receiving their existence from another, from God okay? And, and as this, this kind of uh, hierarchy then of beings, they're, 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 we have a, a set of angels that are created, okay? Nine and the last one, the tenth, uh, the ninth moves the moon, the sphere of the moon. The tenth is the agent intellect that ultimately creates the world uh, as a kind of demiurge, okay? And, and, and we have then God, okay, kind of in the celestial order, and then in, in the political thought, okay, we have of al-Farabi, he will say, well, the, the, the caliph, okay, the head of the Islamic world is likened, okay, uh, to a kind of God-like principle. And then society is hierarchically ordered underneath him. Okay, now the last intelligence is what he calls the agent intellect. I wish I could get into this more, uh, but, but it's ultimately the agent intellect that creates the world, okay? And the, the, the caliph has access to the agent intellect, which makes man to know, uh, and, and a particular insight that allows him to govern wisely. And then we have a hierarchy of society with all the people at the bottom, you know, uh, and then we have hierarchy of officials, which are like those hierarchy of angels uh, with the ruler at the top, like the prime mover or the god-like principle in Neoplatonic thought, okay? Uh, and, and this idea of the universe, the strange hybrid okay, of, of Ptolemaic cosmology, uh, a, a Neoplatonic theory of emanation, is it, something that's adopted. Now, I want you to focus on this. Okay? And it's, this is where Islamic philosophy becomes kind of heterodox. Okay? You'll see that the world is eternal. Okay? That's one way in which it's problematic. Second is that God creates by way of all these intermediary intelligences and not all at once by himself, okay? Uh, And that is problematic. They also would say that it's really the the agent intellect, the lowest of these intelligences that makes man to know and that directly creates the world. Uh, And so even God's knowledge of the particulars of creation is, is not necessarily affirmed. Uh, And and that is problematic. Okay. And then as a final problematic idea that is adopted by Al-Farabi and passed on to Avicenna, is the idea that the soul of man is ultimately at, at death, his soul survives death. Okay. Even if his body cannot, but his soul is united to the agent intellect and not to God himself. Okay. And so these notions which which were taken over from the philosophical tradition they inherited got al-Farabi in hot water okay with Islamic orthodoxy and and it got uh, as well his star pupil this man Avicenna okay in hot water as well okay now Avicenna uh, Ibn Sina, is a very important thinker okay Uh, His ideas in metaphysics that I'm going to get to in a moment very much influenced Aquinas. Uh, He was from modern-day Uzbekistan, born to a noble uh, Persian family. Uh, He began his training in medicine at the age of 13. Uh, By the age of 16, he was practicing medicine. Uh, He wrote 300 works, uh, mostly in Arabic, but but in philosophy and medicine, astronomy and politics, and really everything, Okay. Uh, he cured a disease of the emperor, which gave him kind of unfettered access to the library. And he read all of Aristotle, but Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, he actually read 40 times, I think it was, before finally the commentary of Al-Farabi, he discovered, which, which w- was an experience that allowed the scales to fall back from his eyes. And he discovered uh, that work and its significance in, 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 uh, uh, by way of the, the commentary of his mentor. Okay. Now what is distinctive about Avicenna okay he adopts much of what i just said of the cosmology of, of Al-Farabi his predecessor but he does more to make clear some of the distinctions okay that we find latent in the cosmology of Al-Farabi that are very influential okay and i'm going to focus on just one of them is the distinction between possible possibility and necessity The distinction between something, the distinction also between essence and existence. He would say that it's only God has the essence to exist. Whereas every other thing, these intelligences, all the way down to the most base form of matter, all of these things, even if they proceed in a necessary fashion from God, in themselves are only possible. And so their essence to be the kind of thing they are is impotency in relationship to the act of existing. And so they would say, and this is the, one of the central distinctions in Aquinas. Okay, before Aquinas, there's a lot of philosophers of essence that explain what the causes that make the world to be what it is. But it's only with Aquinas that he does that, but he also focuses on things insofar as they exist and says, and I wish we could get into all all the specifics of this, you kind of have to take my word for it right now, but but his distinction between essence and existence that all created things have an essence, a whatness to be a cat, to be a man, that is impotency in relationship to the act of existence. They don't exist by their very nature. Uh, And therefore existence is something that ultimately has to come from God, okay? who exists perfectly as the only necessary being. Everything else in itself is just possible. This idea he really gets from Avicenna, okay? But he is gonna reject this this idea of creation by way of emanation. And he does so there by accepting the arguments of the next thinker, Al-Ghazali, okay? Al-Ghazali is the theologian of this bunch. Okay? But what is fascinating about him is that al-Ghazali uses philosophy to reject what he considers to be the heirs of the philosophers. And he writes a very famous work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, in which he attacks a lot of these ideas proposed by al-Farabi and Avicenna, which he sees to be incompatible with Islamic orthodoxy okay? So for instance, he attacks the idea of the eternity of the world. He attacks the idea of God's lack of knowledge of particulars. And he attacks the idea of the resurrection of the body. How so? Okay. Well, he will say and use arguments like this, that there are beings, well, there's always a necessary relationship between causes and effects. And so, whereas Avicenna would say, given God, his effects necessarily follow, okay? Kind of like given fire, uh, there'll always be heat. Given a God who is existence and all good, his effects will necessarily come to be. But Al-Ghazali would say, yes, but not all causes create by an act of the will, okay? And so though there is a necessary relationship between God as cause and the world as his effect, okay, it's only on the condition of his willing freely the existence of the world that it comes to be. It doesn't proceed then from God's nature, okay, directly uh, by a necessity of nature, but instead by a free act of the will and God simply outside of time willed from all eternity for the world to be created and created with a beginning in time. And here he gives arguments that were given by a Christian thinker by the name of John Philoponus to argue that the world could be proven by a philosophical argument to have a beginning of its duration. I'll give you an example of one of these arguments. It's called a paradox of the infinite. And this paradox would be inherited by Al-Ghazali and passed on to St. Bonaventure, okay? He would say that if the world always was, then there had to be an infinite amount of past days, okay? But if there was an infinite amount of past days, we never would have arrived at today. Why not? Well, the very definition of the infinite is, 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 is that it is incapable of being traversed. It's, it's untraversable. The, uh, infinite is limitless. And therefore, if there is a limitless amount of past days, we never would have arrived at today because that infinite amount of past days could not have been traversed. Therefore, there has to be, because we arrived at today, a first day. And therein is his argument philosophically for why the the, the Islamic position by faith at the world at the beginning of time, why it was taken to be proven. Okay, and so there is our friend Al Ghazali. Now, the last thinker we're going to talk about with the very little time we have remaining is uh, this thinker by the name of Viveroese. Okay, now the other thinkers we mentioned previously, okay, they all exist in the eastern part of the Islamic world. Okay, and I might add, uh, Al Ghazali also gives arguments. Uh, to reject. Uh, You know, the the God is all perfect. He must be omniscient, and he must have knowledge of particulars, not just universals. Uh, He says, you know, it's one of the tenets of Islam, reward and punishment. Without a body, you you can't be punished. And so he argues that the soul and body of man has to um, survive death. And so he gives all these coherent arguments using philosophy to reject the, what he considered to be the bad philosophical arguments of his predecessors that led people to abandon potentially heterodox teaching of Islam, okay? Now, we have Averroes, the last guy we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna confront here, uh, who was born in Cordoba, uh, the great city uh, of, of Spain um, that was at that point uh, under Islamic influence. And he is known for his radical Aristotelianism. Okay, and and one of his famous works. Okay, just to kind of follow the line of argumentation we've started, he he writes a work called "The Incoherence of the Incoherence." Okay, so Al-Ghazali wrote "The Incoherence of the Philosophers." Averroes writes "The Incoherence." of Al-Ghazali's incoherence of the philosophers, okay? Wherein he tries to offer philosophical arguments against uh, Al-Ghazali, Al-Ghazali, the theologian, who by the way, became a Sufi mystic, okay? The, the tradition of Islamic mysticism, Sufism, or Sufism, I should say. Uh, I think that's, that's how we pronounce it. Uh, is, uh, he became uh, kind of very, very popular in, in that mystical tradition for what it's worth. Now, Averroes tried to purify Aristotle, okay, from Neoplatonic thought and to defend him against uh, Islamic Orthodoxy. And this led him to having his books burned, okay, and being exiled to Morocco, where he eventually died in in 1198, okay? And so he would argue, okay, against those arguments I posed uh, of Al-Ghazali, that if God always willed to create a world, then there always had to be a world. Okay, because in, 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 a, in a being like man, okay, they're, they're, if I will something, okay, uh, my desire and the act aren't simultaneous, but they are in God. If God always willed to create a world, then there always had to be a world, and therefore the world is eternal. Okay, now the problem with that argument is he's predicating time of God, okay? And so when we say God always willed, we don't mean that God always willed in time, but instead time is actually contingent upon the creation of the world, okay? Uh, and there isn't a kind of a time when God was not creating, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, so, so there's a problem there and he's predicating time of God, but he tries to argue against the argument of, uh, of Al-Ghazali, and then he would say God does, uh, you know, he knows universals, and, and, and universals govern particulars, and so that's enough uh, for God to know the universal laws that govern particulars, and he doesn't have to bother with the particulars themselves. And then he actually goes further uh, than Avicenna did, and he, and he actually rejects not only uh, the, the bodily resurrection, but he rejects any personal uh, uh, immortality of the soul okay, in his unique interpretation of Deonima, uh, the work on the soul of Aristotle, he thought that there was just a, a kind of immortality for the species, but not for individual men, okay? And it's this idea that Aquinas will write his De Unitante Intellectus, uh, uh, Contra Averroistus, is on the unicity of the intellect against Averroist to try to reaffirm that no, uh, uh, there is not one intellect, one soul for all men, the kind of quasi-pantheistic idea that was espoused by Averroes.. okay? Uh, now in politics, maybe this is the last thing I'll say, uh, he also had an idea that, that, that was seen to be very dangerous by the theologians. He would say there's three classes of people. The leaders should be philosophers, okay? Uh, and then they are served by the theologians. Now, he tried to reconcile theology and f- faith in this way. The philosophers tell the truth by way of argument. And theologians give the truth in ways stupid people can understand. Okay? They tell stories that communicate the same truths that, that, that are communicated directly by argument, by philosophy, but the people can't understand it. So we give to them allegories, we give to them stories to communicate the same truths. And so philosophy and theology are compatible, but it's clear what is superior and what's superior is actually philosophy. And then there's the ordinary people of society, okay? Now this idea is obviously contradicts the Quran, it contradicts, uh, uh, it's highly problematic. Uh, But it becomes very influential. Uh, You see even an idea of a kind of Hegelian rationalism and pantheism. Uh, You see the the almost idea of theology as just a tool to kind of control the masses, influencing the thought of Machiavelli, okay? Uh, A a, a very important political thinker in, in the Western world. But you can also see how his thought is very dangerous, okay? So we have this great wealth of wisdom, but we we see that there is a real need to judiciously look at it, to judge what is true from what isn't. Uh, And this was the task of the scholastics of the 13th century is to receive Aristotle, to receive all the insights of the Islamic thinkers and to investigate them, to receive what wisdom there is there, and then to make arguments uh, against the the, the, the the ideas that passed as wisdom uh, that were seen to ultimately be fallacious. Okay, so there you go. There is a whirlwind introduction, okay, uh, to uh, scholasticism, Islamic influence on scholasticism, how Aristotle came to be rediscovered in the West, okay? Uh, and, and how these different traditions, Christianity uh, and, and, and Islam, uh, kind of worked with the, 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 these difficult issues of how to reconcile our faith with our belief. So again, you know, this is a very, uh, the last thing, and then we'll field some questions here. But but this is a, a scholarly field that is very hot in medieval studies, okay? And, and so, uh, you know, I'm scratching the surface of, of all that lies underneath and so I gave you a bunch of scholarly sources. They might be over, you know, it's kind of difficult to begin with. So I think I'd probably start with those histories, okay? I have a history of medieval philosophy. This is by Armin Maurer. Uh, there's the great history of philosophy, the best in English language. It's really long. It's Frederick Copleston's. Uh, but the medieval uh, history, medieval philosophy, uh, which is part two of this, like, seven-volume uh, seven series uh, is a good place to start, so you even then see Islamic thought within the wider context of of Islamic thought. Okay, and then after reading some of that, you can begin to read some of the philosophers themselves. You know, and so I have a couple different compilations uh, uh, that I have there that, that, that present some of kind of on different issues, uh, some of the philosophy of these thinkers themselves. You know, and, and I think maybe dabbling in those uh, might might be fun. And, and even to look at medieval philosophy in general, not just, you know, the Islamic thought, but, but to appreciate even Islamic thought and its contribution within the wider frame
1: of reference of medieval philosophy at large. Cool. Absolutely. yeah, Great. Yeah, Martin, you can go ahead and yeah. start off.
2: Yes. Uh, the, the conquest of Alexandria by Islam play any role in the dissemination mm-hmm. of of the uh, you know the the Greek philosophy to eventually to Europe? Oh oh very much so. Oh, very much so. So that that was and and remained uh, from really the beginning of, of you know after you, for, throughout the, the Middle Ages a, a great center of learning. Okay. So that that was and it's actually in, in in that center of learning you even find some great Neoplatonic thinkers, okay, came from that specific center of learning Uh, we we find uh, some of the the great Jewish thinkers come from there. Uh, there, It it does become one of the other major epicenters
1: of intellectual life throughout that period of time. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. There's a question coming in from anonymous um, who is writing in here Mm -hmm. and it's saying, okay, I know Christian thinkers who engage with Plato Mm -hmm. and Aristotle, but were Mm -hmm. there any Christian thinkers who engaged with pre-Platonic or post-Aristotelian Greek philosophers?
2: Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so, so say, say say the last part again. I'm, I'm trying to get the to, the time frame yeah. right here. Yeah. Pre-Platonic or okay.
1: post post-Aristotelian. Got Greek it. Form. Got it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Great. Absolutely. So the the pre-Socratic philosophers would be the the pre-Platonic philosophers. Uh, so that would be thinkers like Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, Heraclitus, Parmenides. Uh, you know, uh, their works, though, uh, sadly, they're, 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 there aren't a lot of existent works of those thinkers, uh, but they exist in the thought of other people, okay? Uh, but but even like, you know, Aquinas, you know, when he is writing uh, about uh, his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, he reflects extensively on Parmenides and and his idea that that, uh, change is just illusion. Aquinas makes reference to Democritus, who Karl Marx wrote his doctoral thesis on, uh, the the great materialist of the ancient world. Uh, So Aquinas and the Islamic scholars, they're all familiar with the the kind of piecemeal excerpts from the the, uh, pre-Socratic thinkers. And then, yeah, the Neoplatonic thinkers are post-Aristotelian, okay? And they have, with their whole theory of emanation, a major influence on the Islamic world and and on on the Christian world as well. Uh, Thinkers like Porphyry and and Plotinus. Uh, There's there's a whole range of of those thinkers that are important. And and then some of the great Stoic thinkers uh, are definitely a cultured individual, Uh, would read the Epicureans, would read the Stoics, uh, would read a little bit of the skeptics, but it's not really until the early Renaissance that like w- where they read Sextus Empiricus uh, and, and people like Michel de Montaigne take the, the skeptic tradition more seriously. And there's a reemergence of skepticism in, in the Renaissance. Uh, but all those other thinkers very much are, 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 you know, thinkers, you know, that Aquinas makes reference to. He's talking about the passions. Uh, he he's quotes the Stoics and their attitude towards the passion of anger. Uh, he quotes the Stoics there, you know, and and, and the Islamic thinkers uh, also are influenced by those individuals.
1: Okay, great. There's going to be two that I actually am going to conclude here with, did the origins of all this great wisdom uh, mm-hmm. begin or come from from Greece? And if so, is there a reason for that? Uh, or was this simply historically more intellectual cultures? What yes. one, one person's writing here. It's a great question. And then um, another person's writing and saying, what was so appealing about Aristotle that it led scholars to turn, turn their backs on centuries of Platonic-inspired theology, so
2: uh, I, I would just say, first of all, begin with the latter question. So I, I think it's important that they didn't they didn't turn their back on the 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 the, the insights of of Plato as much, because uh, again, like as I mentioned, Aquinas quotes Augustine more than anyone else, and so mm-hmm. I, I think there there's very important, especially regarding. I, I wish I could get into this more in detail. It's a very technical distinction, but the whole idea of emanate. Uh, uh, <laughs> not emanation, but the whole idea of exemplarism. Okay, so in Aristotle, the the world is eternal, uh, the prime mover is eternal, and the prime mover moves the world. But with Plato, uh, with his demiurge, there's exemplar forms. And the things that are made, the cats, individual cats that come to be in matter, Uh, Their pattern, the archetype of those cats exists in this perfect, unchanging realm of forms. Well, with Augustine, those forms are put into the mind of God and become the exemplar ideas of all the things that God creates. And and so everything in this world has a reason for its existence in the idea God has of it in his own mind. And that idea of exemplarism is very platonic and something that is very important to St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, and is not in Aristotle. Okay. And so I, I do want to very much emphasize that, that, that Platon, uh, Platonic thought, Augustinian thought is really at the heart of what a lot of Aquinas is doing. What is novel is that he was also open to Aristotle, you know, and, and, and in his ethics, in, in his logic, in his natural thought, he, he, he's open to uh, a, a lot of the distinctions Aristotle makes in, in his philosophy of man, for instance, uh, but that doesn't neglect, and, and so there really wasn't a turning in the back, but but more of an expanding of the mind to make room for reconciliation, not only with platonic thought, but also Aristotelian thought, in, and to incorporate it into uh, a kind of Christian worldview. okay? Uh, and so I do want to really make that point.
1: Thanks for rounding that out, Dr. Wynch. Yeah, well sure. We'll conclude tonight uh, on that note. Thanks again. God bless everybody. Thank you.
0: Pray for us.